what we need today. The psalmist says, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. And Father, this is who we are. We are a people of dust, and we are a people committed to dust because of our sin. There is no life intrinsically within us, we confess, Father, and so we pray. We come to you this morning crying out, give me life according to your word. We confess that you must speak so that we may live. And so, Father, we look to your word this morning. Would you strengthen our faith in the word? Would you overcome our doubts in the word? Would you overcome the dullness of our hearts in and through the word? Would you encourage us in the word? Would you transform us into the image of Jesus through your word? And Father, we rest in the fact that you bless your word. You love the preaching of your word. And you love transforming a people into the likeness of your son. And so we come this morning with good hope that you will use the word to this great end. That you will be transforming us this morning as we look into the word and behold your son. And so Father, we ask that you would pour out your spirit once again on us as we hear the words. And on me as I, I preach the words. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So as Christians, we understand that the Bible that we have just opened up and that we, we read from this morning is God's revelation. We understand that in these pages, in this sacred book, that God, he reveals his plans and he reveals his, his good purposes to us. And even more importantly, even more fundamentally, in the scriptures, we find that God actually reveals himself to us. When we open up the pages of this sacred book, we learn what God is like. We learn what God does. We learn who God is. We even learn the names by which we should call upon this God. But as we look at our Bibles this morning, we also have to reckon with the fact that the Bibles we hold and read did not magically drop out of the heavens, bound in letter, leather with the letters ESV on them. The documents, the different books that make up the scriptures written, were written over a span of, of thousands of years. And as we think about this span of revelation, it becomes clear that God's revelation is progressive in nature. And what this means is that as we read the scriptures moving from Genesis to Exodus and finally all the way to the book of Revelation, we learn more about God's plans and purposes. They become more clear. They become more, more definite to us. And this idea of progression applies to our knowledge of God himself. As we move throughout the scriptures, as we keep reading and studying, we gain clearer and more descriptive pictures of who this God is and what this God is like. And so we can chart out some of this progression in the scriptures. We can start in the book of Genesis. Abraham meets God in the book of Genesis and when Abraham meets God, he begins to learn who this God is and what this God is like. And the Lord reveals himself to Abraham, and the Lord says this, I am God Almighty. And as we move through the book of Genesis, our knowledge of who this God is, who revealed himself to Abraham, grows and increases. We learn that this God who revealed himself to Abraham is the, the Most High God. 
that he is Adonai, that he is the Lord, he is master over all. We learn that he is the everlasting God. We learn that he is the Lord who will provide. And when we leave the book of Genesis and enter into the book of Exodus, we learn something new about this God that we didn't know in the book of Genesis. A piece of knowledge that then shapes the rest of the scriptures. And so the Exodus story is the decisive and defining moment in Old Testament history. Here in the Exodus story, God comes to save his people from bondage and slavery. And here in the Exodus story, God begins to, to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the midst of this great salvation event, in the midst of these mighty deeds that God pours out on Egypt, he reveals an essential attribute of his character. We learn that the God who keeps his promises to the patriarchs and the God who saves his people is a holy God. So after beholding the mighty deeds of God, Moses gathers the people of Israel and they're standing by the Red Sea and they've watched the Lord drown Pharaoh and all his chariots, and they begin to sing, and they have this this corporate worship event, and they sing this song in Exodus 15, and it says this, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And what the children of Israel learned in the Exodus event was this great fact about the Lord, this God is holy. And we see it in their song. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? And the reverberations of this revelation of who God is 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 felt throughout the rest of the scriptures. We hear this refrain in the book of Leviticus again and again. I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. And perhaps the most famous passage about the holiness of God comes in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so standing at the center of Israel's life and worship is the Holy One of Israel. But if the Holy One of Israel has come to dwell among his people, if if God has revealed himself as holy, that this is essential to who he is, what does this revelation mean for Israel? And here we see that the Lord's salvation and presence among his people bears a distinct and practical implication for them. They are to be holy because God is holy. Because the Lord God, the Holy One, has come among them, they are to act distinctly from the nations that surround them. And this distinction invades all areas of life, from how one worships God, to how one relates to their family members, to how one treats their neighbors, even into the very mundane matters of life like what you're going to put into your mouth when you eat, what you're going to to wear every day. And we see in the, the Exodus story that the holiness of God radically reshapes the people of God. The holy God in the Exodus does not simply save a people, but he is in the business of refashioning and, and reforming a people to resemble and reflect his own holiness. And so Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2 sums up the implications of the Exodus story so well. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so we can just sum up what I, what I said this morning in this introduction. It's this, this great theme of the Exodus. Salvation flows from the holy God, and the salvation results in a holy people. 
And so we've been working through the Gospel of Mark the past months, and we've come to realize as we've been working through the Gospel of Mark that Mark has consciously built his story of Jesus upon the Old Testament Scriptures. From the very first chapter of Mark's Gospel, he preaches to us, if you really want to understand Jesus... If you really want to understand this gospel that I'm proclaiming to you, you must go back and carefully understand the the hope, the patterns, the stories, the prophecies of the Old Testament. And particularly important for Mark, as it is in the rest of the Bible, is the Exodus story. And Mark consciously and, and carefully builds the story of Jesus around this great salvation event. And we can just make some comparisons this morning. Just as the Lord in the Exodus story split the Red Sea, Jesus again and again in the Gospel of Mark shows his sovereignty over the sea. He calms the sea with just his word. And then last week we saw Jesus walks upon the water, showing his sovereignty over it. Just as the Lord freed Israel from bondage to Pharaoh, we see in the Gospel of Mark Jesus working to free Israel from bondage to a greater Pharaoh, Satan himself. Again and again and again, Jesus casts out demons, and he is liberating Israel from their captor. Just as the Lord drowned Pharaoh's army in the sea, we see this another drowning take place. An army of demons enter into the herd of pigs, and they rush off the cliff, and they drown in the sea. And we could go on on listing similarities between Jesus' ministry and the story of the Exodus. And Mark wants us to make these connections. And so we can do a bit of reasoning this morning. If Mark is consciously building his story around the Exodus story, we would then expect that this gospel, that this story that he is telling us about Jesus, would also then be built around the great theme of the Exodus. Salvation flows from the holy God, and the salvation results in a holy people. So it's clear when we look into into Mark that the holy God of the Exodus has arrived and has arrived in the person of Jesus. We can go back to chapter 1, verse 24. And in chapter 1, verse 24, we hear the startled cry of the unclean spirit. What's so interesting, from the unclean spirit, we learn something very important about Jesus. The spirit confesses this. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And as readers of the Exodus story, that should make us pause. And as we continue to read the story, story after story reveals that salvation flows from the Holy One of God. Wherever Jesus goes, the sick are healed. Broken and deformed bodies are made whole. Demons are cast out. And most importantly, people are forgiven of their sins. And so this morning we can say that in the coming of Jesus, something greater than the Exodus has happened, something greater than the splitting of the Red Sea, something greater than the ten plagues, something greater than Pharaoh's army drowning in the sea. We can say this, because Jesus has come, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. We can say that the holy God of Israel has come among us and his salvation is so evident in all of his deeds. And here we need to return to the great theme of the Exodus again. Salvation flows from the holy God, and the salvation results in a holy people. So Mark is telling us something. He's saying the holy God of Israel has arrived in Jesus. He's telling us that the salvation of God has arrived in Jesus. Something greater than the Exodus event. The greatest salvation ever told. And if this is true, we have to ask a few questions. 
If God has arrived, if his salvation is evident, what does it mean then to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean then to be a faithful member of God's people? Or even more pointedly, what does it look like to live a life holy to God? And so our aim for the rest of this morning is to answer these questions from our text. And we're going to develop the sermon in two parts. In the first part of the sermon, we're going to look at the disagreement between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. And they have a disagreement about holiness. And second, we're going to develop some practical implications from this story, from this disagreement for our own lives. So we can look at this disagreement between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. So what does it mean to be a faithful member of God's people? What does a holy life to God actually look like? And when we look into our text, these are the very questions that are being wrestled with. The scribes and the Pharisees for some time have carefully watched Jesus' ministry. They've witnessed Jesus' power over sickness and demons. They've heard the preaching of Jesus with their own ears. Time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. They've watched the popularity of Jesus soar with the crowds. They've seen that wherever Jesus goes, there is the crowd, and they're hanging upon every word that Jesus says. But when the scribes and the Pharisees look at Jesus' ministry, they are not filled with joy or happiness. They don't see any good news in Jesus' proclamation. Rather, they're filled with concern. So concerned that we learn in chapter 3, verse 6, they, they held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, trying to figure out how they might destroy Jesus. So concerned that these men publicly campaigned against Jesus. They ran attack ads on the TV. They ran smear ads against Jesus, saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. But we have to ask, what was it that made these spiritual leaders so concerned about Jesus? And again and again and again in the Gospel of Mark, we see that their contention with Jesus centers around the issue of holiness. What it looks like to be a a member of God's people. And at every turn in the Gospel of Mark, it seems like Jesus is pushing on these boundaries of holiness. He dines with sinners and tax collectors. He touches and heals those who are ritually unclean. His disciples do not keep the days of fasting, nor do they scrupulously follow the Sabbath regulations. And to the scribes and to the Pharisees, when they see Jesus, they see a lawbreaker. And they're concerned because the crowds are following this Jesus, and it seems like he's going to lead Israel astray into lawlessness. So when we come to chapter 7, this issue is centered around this very thing of holiness. And the material that Mark places before us in chapter 7 reads much like a, a court scene. So we've all watched TV court shows, how they proceed, and they always start with some kind of indictment, a, a charge. And so Mark records the evidence that the scribes and the Pharisees bring against the Lord Jesus. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Look there with me. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And if we go down to verse 5, we hear their, their formal charge against Jesus 
thinly veiled in a, in a question. They say, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And essentially, they're accusing Jesus. You let your disciples live in defilement. You're okay with it. And as we hear the charge from the Pharisees and the scribes, this, this seems utterly ridiculous. Why would these men, some of them traveling all the way from Jerusalem, take time, take resources, take energy to squabble with Jesus about the washing of hands, about the issue of hygiene? Why would they, with all the issues circulating around Jesus, like the forgiveness of sins, Jesus shows up and he says to a man, your sins are forgiven. Or in another scene, Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Why would they focus on grooming patterns? But if we look closely at the text of Scripture, we soon find out that their concern was not against the spread of germs. It was not against uncouth eating habits. Rather, their concern centered on a sort of religious hygiene, the issue of holiness and defilement. Or we could say it another way, relating it back to our question, their concern was this, what does a holy life to God look like? And so Mark explains the issue in verses 3 and 4. Mark says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. We have to understand this morning that the rules of the Pharisees and the scribes are not pedantic in nature. But there is a a force and a logic to what they're doing here. They're operating with the theme of the Exodus in mind. Israel is to be separate from the world. Israel is to be holy to God. And so the the Pharisees and the scribes, in in their zealousness for this, not only will the Pharisees and the scribes shun fellowship with the Gentiles, not only will the Pharisees and the scribes refuse to share their dinner tables with Gentiles, but the Gentiles are so disdainful, so unholy, that they wash their hands before they eat to rid themselves of any contact or any influence with the Gentile world. And the washing of hands was this potent symbol saying, I have nothing to do with them. Every time before you eat, you would remind yourself, I have nothing to do with them. And so the problem with Jesus is that he is not observing the distinctions that set Israel apart from the world. It appears that he is circumventing the rules of religious hygiene, that he is erasing the boundary markers of holiness, that he's ignoring the great implications of the Exodus. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So what happens? Well, it's never a good idea to indict Jesus. It's never a good idea. We should have Mark's words from chapter 1, verse 22 in the background here. Mark chapter 1, verse 22 says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus operates on a different level, and we will see him operating on a different level in this text. And so this trial scene does not proceed normally. Jesus, the one who is on trial, does not defend his ministry or his person or even his disciples. He does not offer up testimony or witnesses or a rebuttal. Rather, Jesus leaves his seat and walks to the judge's bench, we could say. And there he puts on the judge's robe and he takes up the judge's gavel. And it is here from the judge's bench that Jesus exposes that these men, 
the scribes and the Pharisees, these religious leaders charged with caring for and shepherding the people of Israel have radically misunderstood what holiness to God is all about. They don't get it. So Jesus begins his sentencing in verse 6. He says to these men, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. We're well accustomed to this word. And what, what Jesus means is that these religious leaders were like professional actors. While on stage they could beautifully demonstrate the life of holiness. With an audience before them, pious words flow out of their mouths. But their holiness, their devotion to God is just a a stage act. It had not penetrated into the very core being of who they are. So Jesus continues his, his judgment of them by quoting and applying a text from the book of Isaiah. And this text that he quotes from Isaiah is a scathing rebuke of Israel's leaders. He says this to them. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship, teaching as, the doctrine, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What Jesus is doing here by quoting Isaiah is he's saying that while these men speak of holiness, while they exposit laws on purity, they have neglected the very purpose for holiness and for keeping the rules of God, to have their hearts set upon God and God alone. They have missed the great point of holiness. And so here in this text, Jesus reveals that these men have, have neglected, have, have set aside the weightiest part of the law. What is the weightiest part of the law? Well, that you would actually love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these men have neglected this weighty part of the law. But Jesus continues to probe He shows them their their heart problem, and now he shows the evidence of what's going on. Not only are these men hypocritical and have neglected the weightiest command of the law, but they in their hard-heartedness toward God had manipulated the law of God for their own benefit. Jesus reveals the poisonous result of the scribe's hypocrisy. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. What Jesus is saying here is that the scribes, by their many layered interpretations by their many traditions that they have passed on from generation to generation, by their sophisticated rules for application, by their extra-biblical manuals that they they wrote up, actually subverted the law of God from its original purpose. Jesus could have listed off many different examples of this subversion, and I'm sure he saw many things in Israel that troubled his soul, but he points to one egregious error in verses 10 through 12. Jesus says, For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. So what does this mean? Well, in ancient Israel, there was no such thing as a retirement plan or a pension plan. One would work as long as you could, and when you couldn't work anymore, your retirement plan, your pension plan was your children. Your children would take care of you in your old age. And so the fifth commandment bears a special importance within the life of Israel. Honor your father and your mother. And when we think about the fifth commandment, we often think about our little children, telling them, well, you need to honor me, you need to obey me. But the fifth commandment in the life of Israel had lifelong obligations for the child. They had to care for their parents when they got old and infirm. 
What's going on in this text? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, these crafty teachers, allowed grown men to shirk their responsibilities towards their needy and aging parents. They taught all that one would have to do is say that their wealth is apportioned to God. They would say, this is is Corbin. In making this legal exclusion, they would no longer have to use that money that they said is given to God to care for their parents. And the real catch here, the real good thing for these people was if they portioned it to God, they didn't actually have to give it to God. They could keep it for themselves. Essentially, all that they did, would do would exclude their parents from having any right to their property or money. So as we peer into Mark 7 this morning, we get a clear picture of the religious wreckage in Israel. In their hand, Israel had the pure law of God, but in their hardness of heart, they choose to cover over it and ignore it, preferring the words of man before the words of God. And what we see in chapter 7 is a real tragedy. These people are dull towards God. These people have turned aside from God. They preferred their own laws, and in doing that, they're actually hurting other people, even their own parents. While we see tragedy in this text, this text should create a deep appreciation for the work and ministry of the Lord Jesus. The aim of Jesus' ministry, the very reason he spilt his, his blood and gave up his body in death, was to deliver a people from what the scribes and the Pharisees have in their hearts. To deliver a people from hardness of heart. To deliver a people from reckless neglect of God's words. What we see in the scribes and Pharisees is our own story. It's the story of every human being, every child of Adam. But Jesus comes. And because of Jesus' coming, because of his ministry, because of his life and death and resurrection, there is a better hope for us. In the Old Testament, there are these prophecies that talk about a new covenant coming. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah speaks of what this means for the people of God. And because of Jesus' ministry, his death and resurrection, Jeremiah's words are actually true of a people, the church, all who trust and believe in Jesus. And this is what Jeremiah says. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember it no more. What we see in the scribes and the Pharisees is no longer true of the people who trust in Jesus. So we can go back to our questions this morning, our logic of the theme of Exodus. So the Holy One of Israel has come in the person of Jesus. His salvation is evident. We're present partakers in the new covenant, what Jeremiah talks about. We've tasted the ministry of the Spirit. Our hearts have been made agreeable to the law of God. We know the forgiveness of sins. We actually know the Lord. We have to ask then, well, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus now? What does it mean to be a faithful member of God's people? What does a holy life to God actually look like now in light of Jesus and his salvation? So we've looked at the wreckage of Israel. 
but now we can do a positive work. And from Jesus' words, we can build a positive doctrine for the Christian life. And our doctrine is this this morning. A disciple of Jesus is one devoted to God, obediently keeping his commandments. This is the great outcome of the gospel. Jesus died, he was raised, he is seated in heaven, he's poured out his spirit upon the church so that a people might be holy to God, keeping all of his commandments. This is what God is doing in the gospel. Now we need to take a little bit of time this morning and, and flesh this out. What does this mean for us? What does it look like in reality in my day-to-day life? We can add three important New Covenant qualifications to our our doctrine. And our first New Covenant qualification is this. Disciples devoted to God keep the law of God from the heart. Obedience in the Christian life is not intended to be a loveless or a joyless occupation. Keeping the word of God, keeping the commandments of God is not a, a matter of mundane drudgery, just churning out day after day conformity to the law of God like a, a factory plant. Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisee reveals that a, a mere formalism, a mere surface religion is not sufficient at all. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And what Jesus is preaching to us is in the new covenant, I desire your heart. I want your heart active in all that you do. And so as we move throughout redemptive history, we hear the testimony of God's people. And the testimony of God's people always bears a constant refrain. They love God and they love his commandments. We can turn to Psalm 19 and we hear David's testimony. And here we see a a foreshadowing of the heart of the new covenant. He says, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And we can see in David's life that his heart is moving towards God. He delights in the word of God. There's money. I don't want money. I need God's word. There's honey. It's sweet. No, God's word is sweeter. And we hear a similar cry from the psalmist from Psalm 119. He says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In the way of your testimonies, I I delight as in much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word." What we see in the psalmist is his heart has moved towards God. He actually loves this God. He loves his words. And so we can say at the center of law keeping, at the center of obedience in the Christian life, is a heart filled with love to God. This is the heart that God delights in. This is the heart that God desires to see in all of his children. And this is the heart that God presently works to bring about in us through Jesus. We can add a second new covenant qualification. Disciples devoted to God keep the law of God with a pure conscience. We see from our text that the scribes and the Pharisees were were hypocrites, meaning they said one thing, but they, they did another. They spoke much of God, but they did not inwardly love him. They were one thing on the outside, but altogether a different thing on the inside. We have to understand that as we look at the lives of the Pharisees and the scribes, that this life of hypocrisy yields tragic results. The hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees destroyed the consciences of these men. 
These men were play-acting. And by their play-acting, and by their many rationalizations, their divided life slowly but surely dulled their consciences. No longer were they convicted by the incongruencies in their thoughts and behavior. Even worse, these men began to believe their own lives. Tragically, they forgot that they were play-acting. They believed themselves. And they were numb to what was actually going on in their hearts. And the most tragic thing that happens is they find themselves in our text actually rebuking and rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But the true disciple keeps the law of God with a pure conscience. This means a true disciple is not content with any division in his or her life before God. When his heart does not match his hands or when his hands do not match his heart, his conscience strikes at him. He feels the weight of the incongruencies. The disciple is never content with public piety and works of mercy in public while religion wanes and dies in the home. The disciple is never content with keeping one part of the law while neglecting other parts of the law. The disciple is never content to rationalize or justify sin, but is always in the movement of repentance and restoration with God and with others. And the true disciple's aim is to say with the Apostle Paul, he says this to Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart. You got to have your heart working, but also you have to have a clear conscience with God and a sincere faith. And the prayer of a true disciple is found in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. The true disciple prays day after day, saying this, Search me, O God, and and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. This brings us to one more qualification. The disciples disciples devoted to God keep the law of God by shunning all substitutions and additions to the word of God. We see in our story that the scribes and the Pharisees were prideful men, and in their pride, they were quite happy to add their traditions next to the word of God. In their pride, they were quite ready to impress their man-made rules, their interpretations, their their extra-biblical manuals on the congregation of Israel. They felt no compunction about it. But as we see in the life of the Pharisees and the scribes, any substitution, any addition to the word of God only leads to disaster. What did their additions and substitutions do? Well, it led them to leave the word of God behind. It resulted in the breaking of God's laws. It led them to mistreat human beings, their own parents. And even worse, it led them to shun the Messiah of God, rejecting his person and his salvation. But the true disciple has tasted the preciousness and the purity of God's word. Therefore, the true disciple knows the emptiness of all human traditions and man-made rules. The true disciple reckons with his heart. They cannot bring life. They, They cannot kill sin. They cannot calm our anxious minds. They cannot overcome our fears. They cannot fill our hearts with peace. They cannot mediate life to us. They cannot lead us to God. The true disciple knows what Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 2. Why do you submit to regulations according to human precepts and teachings? These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But Paul says, 
They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are of no value to help you kill sin. They're not going to help. And therefore, the true disciple makes Psalm 119, verse 15, the constant prayer. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your words. The true disciple knows it is only the word of God that can revive my soul. It is only the word of God that can make the simple wise. It is only the word of God that can rejoice my heart. It is only the word of God that can give light to my eyes. It is only the word of God that can give me life. And so the true disciple prays, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your words. So believers this morning, brothers and sisters, we see the wreckage of Israel this morning, but we see a, a glorious picture of our Savior. And what has our Savior done? Well, he is the Holy One of Israel, and he has come among the people of God. And with him, he has brought the fulfillment of the new covenant. He brings with him the Spirit, and he draws near to men and women and children, and he circumcises hearts. He removes dullness and hardness, and he makes a people agreeable to the law of God. He brings salvation with him. And the great indicative of the gospel, the great announcement Jesus has come, also comes with a command. Be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. So let's, as God's people, keep the law of God with, a, with our hearts and with a pure conscience, not adding to the word of God or not taking away from it, keeping it and praying, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Let's pray.